the very first sermons that I ever heard. They were not in a church service, but rather they were on the radio. A few months after I became a Christian, someone told me about a man by the name of Dr. Stephen Olford, who was pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. They told me that he had a radio program and I could hear it on Friday nights. It was called Encounter Ministries. So on Friday nights in my little dorm room at University of South Florida, I would listen to Stephen Olford. He was an incredibly dynamic speaker. His messages were biblical. They were powerful. I didn't know what exposition was back then, but he was an expositor. He was a wonderful preacher of the word. I came to admire Dr. Olford greatly and never imagining that I would one day get to meet him. But I did get to meet him. In my first year as a student at the Moody Bible Institute, Dr. Olford was one of the speakers at the school's annual Founders Week conference. And in the providence of God, a friend of mine at Moody was asked to drive to the Drake Hotel in Chicago to pick up Dr. Olford and bring him to the school. And knowing of my admiration for Stephen Olford, my friend asked me to accompany him. I don't recall the specifics. I may have been on my hands and knees begging him. I'm not sure at this point. But anyway, he asked me to accompany him. When we arrived at the hotel, my friend could not find a parking spot, so he asked me if I would go into the lobby and bring Dr. Olford out to the car, which I did. But when I saw Stephen Olford for the first time, I was a bit taken aback because based on his powerful voice and his dynamic personality, I was expecting him to be a large, tall man. Instead, he was rather small in stature, and I thought, this is great, because being on the small side myself, I was greatly encouraged by this. In fact, Dr. Olford's size made such an impression on me that sometime later, I remarked to a pastor that I knew, I said, you know, when I saw Stephen Olford, I realized there was room in God's pulpit for a small man. To which this pastor replied, he said, when I saw you, I realized there was room in God's pulpit for any man. (laughs) Now, at that time, that statement didn't do much for my self-esteem. And the man who said it wasn't particularly sensitive to my feelings. However, sensitive or not, what he said was absolutely true. God chooses people to serve him in key places of ministry who are ordinary nobodies, nothing special, just common people with glaring faults and flaws and weaknesses. But he takes these ordinary people and he shapes them and transforms them so that eventually they end up doing extraordinary things for him. And why does he do it this way? Well, the reason he does it this way is so he alone gets the glory because everyone recognizes that these individuals are just fragile jars of clay and that left to themselves, they couldn't accomplish anything of significance for the kingdom of God. And this isn't new. This has always been God's way. That's why the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, who thought too highly of themselves, said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. For consider your calling, meaning you Corinthians, consider your church, look around your church, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, 
but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. And you know what? Biblical history bears testimony to the Apostle Paul's words. Consider these well-known Bible characters that God chose to use even though they had some serious flaws in their character. For example, initially Abraham was simply a pagan idol worshiper living in Mesopotamia area. And even after he came to know the Lord, Abraham had a problem with lying. Two times, two times, not once, two times, he said the same lie. He said that Sarah was his sister when she was his wife. And then consider Jacob. Jacob intentionally deceived his father Isaac into giving him the blessing reserved for the firstborn son. That was a big deal. He deceived intentionally his father. And then there's Moses the lawgiver, who broke God's law by murdering a man, an Egyptian. And then he hid him as if nobody's going to find out about this. David was a lowly shepherd taking care of his father's sheep when the Lord called him to shepherd the people of Israel. And though David knew better as king, David committed adultery with Bathsheba and was responsible for her husband's death. I could go on and on about more Bible characters who would be considered defective men and women of clay. But the strongest evidence, folks, that God uses the nobodies of this world to further his kingdom is that when it came time to choose the 12 apostles, Jesus chose the most unlikely men to be his special authorized representatives. Writing about these 12 men, one commentator I read said this, when Jesus chose 12 men to be his official representatives, he chose common, ordinary men. The 12 were not from the established religious elite. None were Pharisees, Sadducees, priests, Levites, rabbis, or scribes. None were exceptionally wealthy, with the possible exception of Matthew, who gained what he had by extorting his fellow Israelites. Nor were the apostles chosen from the intellectually elite, the Old Testament scholars, the literate, the highly educated, the theologically astute. Instead, they were uneducated and untrained men, noteworthy only for having been with Jesus. Several were fishermen. One was a tax collector and hence a traitor to his people. Another was a political revolutionary. All except for Judas Iscariot were Galileans, scorned as unsophisticated and uncouth by the more cultured Judeans. Yet the lives and ministries of these men, minus Judas Iscariot and including Paul, would change the course of history. Now this morning, in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we have come to the very passage where we see Jesus choosing these common, ordinary, uneducated men, his 12 apostles. Here's what we read, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, our study this morning. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, 
and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Now, at first glance, these verses seem rather straightforward. They don't appear at first to need much or any comment or explanation. At a certain time in his ministry, Jesus went up to a mountain to pray. After spending the entire night there in prayer, he came down from the mountain, called 12 of his disciples to become apostles, and here are the names of the 12 men he called. End of sermon. Thanks for coming. You're dismissed. But the more one thinks about these verses, the more one uh, considers it, the more one meditates on this passage, uh, there are questions that come to one's mind. Questions like, why did Jesus pick this particular time to choose these apostles? Luke specifically says it was at this time. What is this time and what's the significance of this time? And why did Jesus need to pray about this? As God, doesn't he know everything? If he does, then why pray to the Father? And what's the difference between a disciple and an apostle? And why did he choose 12 of them to become apostles? Why not, why not less? Why not more? And who were these men that he chose? What were they like? What do we know about them? Now, in order to answer these and similar questions, I want to approach this passage by considering several key details that Luke highlights as he tells us the story of Jesus choosing the 12 apostles with the first key detail that he highlights being this. Tells us about the timing of Christ in choosing the apostles. Verse 12 begins this way. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. Now Luke starts this passage off by telling us that it was at this time, which literally in the Greek text reads, now it came to pass in those days, or you could translate it, it was during those days days. The question is, what days is Luke referring to? Well, he's not talking about some specific day or time of the week. No, the thought is it was at a particular period of time, a particular season in Christ's life and ministry that he went off to the mountain to pray. And the particular period of time he's referring to was a time that there was growing antagonism, increasing hostility towards Jesus. And that's very important. That plays into this. This is why this is significant. See, having just experienced a sharp conflict with the Pharisees concerning how to observe the Sabbath, Jesus decided that now was the time that he needed to choose some men to be his apostles. And the reason for this is because he knew his death wasn't too far off since it was his Sabbath day conflict with the Pharisees that triggered these religious leaders' decision that Jesus had to die. This is why we read Matthew chapter 12 verse 14. This is coming out of the Sabbath day conflict. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. And so with tensions rising and hostilities escalating to the point where the Pharisees were mapping out a plan to murder him, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to train men who would carry on his ministry after his departure to glory. 
You see, because Luke doesn't always present events in a sequential, chronological order, it can be challenging. It can be difficult to always know where we are time-wise in Christ's three-year ministry. However, we can know this. We know where we're at by comparing Scripture with Scripture in order to harmonize the four gospel narratives. And doing that, we know that by Luke chapter 6, Jesus is a little over a year into his ministry, giving him then about 18 more months left to train his apostles so that after his death and return to heaven, they would be ready to continue his work on earth as his official representatives. This is why we read in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is Luke writing to a man by the name of Theophilus. The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, what these verses mean is that the first account that Luke composed is what we call the Gospel of Luke. This is what we're studying these days, which he says was about what Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, the Gospel of Luke is about our Lord's three-year earthly ministry. But Luke's second account, which is what we call the book of Acts, picks up where his first account left off by telling us what Jesus continued to do and to teach from heaven through his official representatives, the apostles. And specifically what Jesus continued to do through these men was proclaim the gospel message of salvation. This is why just a few verses down in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 we read, but you, Jesus telling his apostles, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. So after receiving the empowering of the Holy Spirit, which happened on the day of Pentecost when the church was born in the city of Jerusalem, these men were then to move out across the Roman Empire to be Christ's representative and witnesses as they preached his message of salvation. Now, what strikes me about all of this is that in deciding at this very moment of his earthly ministry to choose 12 apostles, Jesus was thinking ahead. He had a plan. There was a strategy. And that plan involved making sure, note this, that you and I, all these years later, would have the opportunity to hear the truth about him and the saving message of salvation in him. And I want you to see this. If you'll turn to John chapter 17, I'll show you what I mean. John chapter 17 is just before our Lord's arrest. It's what theologians call his high priestly prayer to the Father. This actually is the real Lord's prayer. Here's what we read starting in verse 13. Now he's praying about the apostles. These are the men he's talking about. His prayer is, but now I come to you, he means the Father, And these things I speak in the world so that they, meaning the apostles, may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one, that's Satan. They are not 
of the world, even as I'm not of the world, sanctify them, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Now, as I said, this is our Lord's prayer to the Father, praying for the apostles just before he's arrested, then he'll be crucified, raised from the dead, return in a few weeks to glory. But what I want you to notice, what I want you to notice is verse 20, the very next verse. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. I'm not asking only for the apostles. So who else is he praying for? But for those also who believe in me through their word. He's now praying for those who will believe in him through the words of the apostles. In other words, he's praying for people like us who 2,000 years later have come to believe on Jesus Christ through the inspired words of the apostles written down in the New Testament. You see, if Jesus doesn't plan ahead, if our Lord doesn't have a strategy to choose 12 men to be his apostles, there would be no message for us to read. No message. There'd be no New Testament. And with no message to read, we wouldn't be able to know about the salvation in Christ. But because Jesus chose 12 men to spend time with them, to train, to disciple, to mentor, he's able then to leave these men behind as his official representatives who preached and wrote down the inspired message of the gospel so that you and I, all these years later, could read it and experience the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. How wonderful, the Lord, to think of us we were on his mind. So the fact that Jesus chose these men at this particular time in his ministry, it's very significant because this will give him a sufficient time to train these men as his authorized ambassadors so that we, we might know the truth and other generations as well. So the timing of Christ in choosing the apostles, that's the first key detail that Luke highlights about Jesus choosing this, these men. As he continues, he tells us a second key detail that highlights the choosing of these men. And that is that Jesus prayed before choosing the apostles. He prayed. The rest of verse 12, we'll read it in its entirety, was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Now, Luke reveals that Jesus, being fully aware that with the rise in hostility towards him, that it was the right time to choose men who would carry on his work after he was gone, he went off then to pray on a mountain where he spent the entire night there in prayer to God the Father. Now, we don't know what specific mountain Jesus went up to. Luke doesn't tell us. But it is very likely that his disciples knew that they knew which mountain, because notice the way this verse reads. He went off to the mountain to pray. There's a definite article there indicating that this was a particular mountain well known to his followers, no doubt somewhere in the vicinity of the Sea of Galilee where there are numerous hills and numerous mountains. But it really, folks, it really isn't important for us to know where Jesus prayed. Otherwise, the New Testament would tell us. What is important to know is why 
he prayed. And the reason he prayed is because he was asking the Father to reveal to him which men he should choose to be his apostles. Now, that has puzzled many over the years because the thinking is if Jesus is God, and he is, then he is omniscient, meaning he is all-knowing. So if that's the case, then why did he need to ask the Father to reveal anything to him? Doesn't he know everything? Well, I remind you that when we first started studying the Gospel of Luke, we went over this, talking about the mystery of the incarnation of Christ being fully God, becoming a man. And so the answer to this question is that in becoming a man, Jesus voluntarily set aside the independent use of some of his attributes like his omniscience, so that as a man, he depended totally on the Father. Therefore, he actually didn't know at this time which of his disciples the Father wanted him to choose as his apostles. And this may very well explain why Jesus spent the entire night in prayer, because with so many people in Israel following him, it's very possible that for the 10 hours or so that Jesus spent on the mountain praying to the Father, that he spent that time presenting each of them, as one Bible teacher put it, individually to the Father, so the nod would be given to those who were to become the 12. Now that would obviously be time-consuming. It would take hours for him to bring every name of all the followers of his to the Father. That's very possible. And that would be time-consuming. It's also possible that early in the evening, the Father revealed which men would be the 12 apostles, and then Jesus may have spent the remainder of the night praying for them, for their need for wisdom, strength, courage, perseverance, understanding, things of that nature. Now, whether or not this is exactly how things unfolded on the mountain, we don't know. But what we do know is that in coming to such a critical decision as to who he would select to be his 12 apostles, Jesus, we know, depended upon the Father by seeking him in earnest prayer. As I look at that and I think, what an example Jesus is to us. An example of his prayer life, I realize how far short I fall in failing to live up to his example. And I think all of us would say the same thing about ourselves. As one reads about Jesus in the New Testament, you can't help but notice that prayer was an essential part of his life. You see, Jesus not only taught his followers how to pray, he showed them how to pray. And he did it by praying. He prayed during all kinds of circumstances, all kinds of events in his life. For example, in the New Testament, we see him praying at his baptism, praying early in the morning, following a busy day of ministry. He prayed after large crowds had gathered to hear him, be healed by him. He prayed after miraculously feeding the 5,000. He prayed at his transfiguration. He prayed at the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He interceded in prayer for Peter. He prayed in the garden at Gethsemane just prior to his arrest. He even prayed, folks, while dying on the cross. Folks, Jesus was a man of prayer. He prayed in the morning. He prayed at night. He prayed when he faced a crisis. He prayed before great things were accomplished. He prayed after great things were accomplished. Even his last words were a prayer. Father, into your hands I commit 
my spirit. But what stands out about Jesus praying all night in the mountain is that he was there seeking the Father's direction, seeking the Father's guidance in making his decision as to which men would be his apostles. What an example he is to us because praying for guidance, praying for God's direction is what we need to do before making every major decision in our lives, even the minor decisions. But how often do we rush into making decisions without even looking to the Lord in prayer, without spending any time speaking to Him about these major decisions we're about to make, without even asking Him to give us discernment in making these decisions, without asking Him to direct us to passages of Scripture that would help us to make the right decision. Instead, we often do what Proverbs 3.5 tells us not to do, and that is lean on our own understanding, and that's where we get into so much trouble. Listen, if Jesus needed the Father's guidance and sought it by praying, then that's exactly what we need to do too. So if you are facing a major issue in your life these days, a major decision that you're facing or you will face, and you need some divine direction. So, for example, where to go to school, who to date, who to marry, what job to take, where to live. Don't make those decisions on your own. Spend time in prayer, asking the Lord to give you wisdom. You're not going to hear a voice from heaven, but he'll give you wisdom. Asking him to purify your motivations, to cause your heart to base your decision on him getting the glory and not on making life better or easier for you. And so having given us now two key details concerning Jesus choosing the 12 apostles, the timing of his choosing, the praying for his choosing, Luke now gives us a third key detail concerning Jesus choosing the 12. And that is the actual choosing of the apostles. So here's what we read in verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. So having spent the entire night in prayer, Luke tells us that when daylight came, Jesus descended the mountain, called his disciples to himself, and from these disciples he selected 12 of them and only 12 to be his apostles. So let me explain what this means, starting with clarifying the difference between a disciple and an apostle. The term disciple literally means a learner, a student, a pupil, if you will. But in the culture of that day, a disciple meant more than merely being a pupil of a teacher in the sense of listening to the teacher lecture, and then you go home and you do some assigned homework. That's not what a disciple was in that day. At the time of Jesus, a disciple was someone who followed a teacher, literally followed a teacher, because disciples would travel with their teacher wherever he went, and they would listen to him as he taught, and they would learn from him as they observed his life. Now, it's important to understand that by the time, this time in Christ's ministry, he had scores of disciples. He was popular in Israel. We know that at one point he sent out 70 of them. 
And the fact that he miraculously fed 5,000 and then 4,000 would indicate that there were thousands who would consider themselves followers of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, obviously, not all of them were converted followers. Some of them were simply there because they wanted a free meal or because they wanted to be physically healed by him. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brethren. So there were lots of people who would say they were disciples of Christ. Lord had many, many disciples. And out of that large number, he chose 12 of them to be his apostles. So then the question is, what is an apostle? How is an apostle different from a disciple? Well, it goes like this. All the apostles were disciples because they were followers of Jesus. However, not all disciples were apostles because By definition, an apostle is an individual who has been sent by someone having been given full authority to represent the person who sent him. Explaining the meaning of an apostle, R.C. Sproul wrote this. He said, the role of a student was considered a somewhat lowly position, one similar to that of a servant. But an apostle was one who was bathed in authority in the ancient world. An apostolos, that's the Greek word, apostolos, was one who was sent. Or apostolos, I think it should be pronounced, was one who was sent. Someone who filled that role functioned as an emissary or ambassador or a representative of someone in a high position. For example, kings might send out apostles to represent them and they carried with them the authority of the one who sent them. So when Jesus separated 12 men and gave them apostolic authority, he was assigning to them his own authority so that what they said and what they taught carried with it the full weight of Jesus' authority. He's absolutely right. That's what an apostle means. One who is sent, but like an ambassador who has the full authority of the one who sent him. Now, it's essential then that you and I understand the significance of these 12 apostles. Because if we don't, then we'll have a hard time accepting the full Bible's authority because everything the apostles wrote in the New Testament carries with it the full authority of Jesus Christ. So that his words in the four gospel narratives are just as authoritative as their words in the book of Acts and the New Testament letters because they both declared the very words of God even though they're mere humans and he is deity. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the apostles received divine revelation so that what they wrote was revealed inspired scripture. Here's for example what Paul said in Ephesians 3 verse 5. He says, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. So he's writing about how the church is made up not simply of Jewish believers but Gentile believers as well. And Paul says that this truth was revealed, wasn't revealed prior to this to people, but it was revealed now to his holy apostles. This is why Paul declared this great statement in Ephesians 2 verse 20, that the church has been, Paul said, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In other words, the writings of the apostles And New Testament prophets. Who are New Testament prophets? Well, they're men who had some type of association with the apostles, but they weren't apostles. Luke would be considered a prophet. 
the writings of the apostles and New Testament prophets like Luke, they form the foundation, the very foundation of our faith with Jesus being the cornerstone that sets the foundation. Now you may wonder why Jesus chose 12, the number 12 to be apostles and not more and not less. And the proof, folks, that this number was deliberate and not randomly chosen, but deliberately, purposefully chosen, is that when Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, the early church in Acts chapter 1 replaced Judas with a man by the name of Matthias because they understood there had to be 12 apostles. And why did there have to be 12 apostles? Because Jesus was appointing these men to be the Jewish people's true leaders over the 12 tribes of Israel since the nation's present leaders were corrupt. They were apostate, men like the Pharisees, the Sadducees. The Lord, in a sense, was just sweeping them aside. They were not legitimate leaders. These 12 now become legitimate leaders. This is why later our Lord would say that in the coming millennial kingdom, his thousand-year reign on earth, after he returns, the 12 apostles will rule and they will reign with him over the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus said that in Luke chapter 22, verses 28, 30. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you'll sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's why there's 12 of them. Now, something important to keep in mind with these 12 men being selected is the doctrine of God's sovereign choice. This is rich in theology. Jesus sovereignly chose these men, just like the Lord does in electing some to be saved, but not everyone. So the Lord elected these 12 men to be his apostles, but not all of his disciples, just 12 of them. In fact, Jesus himself spoke of this. He said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I don't know how much clearer you could make it. In fact, you can't make it any clearer. You didn't choose me. I chose you. Not one of these men asked Jesus to make him an apostle. No one sought this position. Each one was sovereignly, divinely chosen for this task and not because there was anything special about them. In fact, folks, just the opposite is true. As I told you earlier, initially these men had glaring faults and weaknesses. This is why in Mark's parallel account of Jesus choosing these men, we read these words in Mark 3, 14 and 15. And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. See, these men, they first had to spend time with Jesus for these 18 months to be trained, to be mentored, to be discipled. And they had to have that before they could be sent out to minister in his name. And even after that, as the Lord departed for glory, these men would be indwelt by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, so their entire character was transformed. But prior to spending time with Jesus and then being empowered by the Holy Spirit, these men, as I told you earlier, they were ordinary nobodies. In fact, they had some incredible weaknesses. In his book, 12 Ordinary Men, John MacArthur points out some of the major flaws in the apostles. 
Here are some of his observations that he makes in this book. He said they were proud. I'm not quoting now. I'm just giving you some of the observations. He points out they were proud, self-serving. They were self-absorbed men, greatly lacking in humility. This is why they were constantly arguing amongst themselves as to who's greatest in the kingdom. At times, they were mentally and spiritually dull. They were slow to understand, slow to grasp what Jesus was telling them. Folks, As we say today, these guys were not the sharpest knives in the drawer. I'm just telling you, this is why we read Jesus saying to them, not once, but several times, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand this parable? Do you not yet understand what I'm talking about? They were a bit slow-witted. In addition, these men were weak in faith. Several times Jesus referred to them as, oh, you men of little faith. Not that they didn't have any faith. Their faith was small. It was little. Also keep in mind, every one of these men, out of fear for their lives, they fled and they deserted Jesus when he was arrested, with Peter denying three times that he even knew Jesus. Now, the reason I want you to be aware of the many character flaws of these 12 apostles is simply to encourage you. Because so often we look at our lives and we see so many shortcomings that we can easily become very discouraged and feel like complete failures, believing that God couldn't possibly use us and that will never change. That is not true at all. That's what Satan wants you to believe. But he's a liar. He's a deceiver. And the proof that the Lord uses those who have incredible shortcomings and glaring weaknesses is that he chose these 12 guys to be his apostles. One Bible teacher I read writing about how God takes nobodies like the apostles and uses them for his glory, he said this, the 12 were like the rest of us. They were selected from the unworthy and the unqualified. They were like Elijah, men with a nature like ours. They didn't rise to the highest usefulness because they were somehow different from us. Their transformation into vessels of honor was solely the work of the potter. And folks, that's exactly what ought to encourage you because whatever you are discouraged about when you look at yourself, perhaps it's past sins, perhaps it's present struggles with particular sins, lacking high intelligence, weak faith, a lack of biblical understanding and knowledge, shyness, insecurity, a lack of confidence, meekness, whatever the issues are in your life, understand that Jesus, the divine potter, is in the process of transforming you and shaping you to be the person he wants you to be, just as he did with the apostles. This is exactly what the apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8, When he says in verse 28 and 29, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then he explains what good he's talking about. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Which means right now, right now the Lord is using everything in your life, the good, the bad, the neutral, all things to conform you to Christ's precious, beautiful, wonderful character. In fact, some of the signs we now have around the the church, we are remodeling, please excuse our appearance. You know, that could be said of us. 
we're in the process of being remodeled. We're under construction. So please excuse our sinful tendencies. We'll have these until glory, but the Lord is working on us. Listen closely, because the way that Jesus uses all things to make us like himself, it isn't automatic. It doesn't just happen. It's not going to take place by itself. This transformation of character only takes place when, like the apostles, you spend time with Jesus so that you learn about him, so that you see the kind of righteous character he has. And the way you spend time with him these days is that you meet with him daily, every day. You meet with him in his word, the Bible, and in prayer. In other words, you need daily fellowship with Jesus like the apostles had. And if you'll do that, then you will see him. You'll see him change your life and he'll make you a vessel useful for his honor. That's how it works. So do it. And that's why in the remainder of our time together this morning, I want to mention each of the 12 apostles, certainly not in detail. We don't have time for that. But I want to pull out their most obvious weakness, at least the ones that we know. We don't know about all of them, but we know about some of them. And so I, having seen the timing of Christ in choosing these men, his praying in choosing them, the actual choosing, we now come to the fourth and final detail about Jesus choosing these men, and that is the actual men. I want you to meet the men that Christ chose to be his apostles. I'm not going to read verses 14 through 16 because these are the names, and we're going to go over the names. Now, as I said, some of these names, you know more about them than others. So Peter, you know, Peter and John, they're well known. But others like James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, we know very little about them. But each of these men were Christ's representatives, authoritative representatives, and they were all transformed by him apart from Judas Iscariot. Now, I want you to understand that Luke's intent in mentioning these names is not to really explain them. The only detail he gives about any of them is Judas, who became the traitor. I want to have biblical integrity to let you know the intent is just to state the names. But Other statements in Scripture tell us about these men. So I'll pull from them. So let's look. Let's meet these men. First of all, first man Luke mentions is a man who was named Simon. Jesus changed his name to Peter. He became the spokesman for the group. The name Peter means rock, which speaks of stability. It speaks of reliability. But initially, folks, Peter was anything but reliable and stable. His major weakness is that he was impulsive. He was brash. He was proud. Someone described Peter as having a habit of revving his mouth while his brain was in neutral. (laughs) Remember, it was Peter who had the audacity. In fact, Jewish people have the word chutzpah, which means unbelievable gall, to actually rebuke the Lord. Who does that? Who rebukes the Lord? Peter did. He rebuked him for saying that he was going to die at the hands of evil men. And it was Peter who told Jesus that though all the apostles will fall away, but I won't. He said, though these others, these others may fall away as if he's better than them. He said, but I'll never fall away. Only to fall away and do something far worse than the others did. He denied Christ three times. But Jesus transformed Peter into a great leader. He became a rock of godly stability. And he can do the same for you. Peter was 
just a man like us. Next apostle Luke mentions is Andrew. That's Peter's brother. We really know very little about Andrew except the most important thing he did is he introduced his more domineering, dominant brother, Peter, to Jesus. There's really nothing negative said about Andrew in Scripture. I think he built great golf courses, didn't he? But no, no, I'm kidding. That's a joke. That's not even in my notes. I don't even know why I said that. But we may not know much about Andrew. We do know a great deal about the next two apostles on the list, James and John. They were brothers sons of a man by the name of Zebedee, and their major weakness is that by personality they were hot-headed and they were overzealous. This is why Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder, and it was their thunderous boldness that often started arguments, like when they had their mother. Their mother asked Jesus to give them the greatest places of honor in the kingdom, one on his left side, one on his right side. And the other apostles got all upset at this. Why? Because they wanted those places of honor. And these two boys got their mother, who was related to Jesus, to actually appeal about this. They were hot-headed, overzealous guys. It was their over-the-top hot-headed zeal that led them to ask Jesus to rain fire down on a village of Samaritans, but the Lord transformed these two brothers so that their zeal was eventually under his control, channeled for his glory. So much so that John became, John, this hot-headed young man, became known as the apostle of love. The next apostle mentioned is Philip. I love Philip. And he did a wonderful thing. He found his friend Nathaniel and told him about Jesus being the Messiah. But Philip also had a glaring weakness. That weakness being that he was a pessimistic guy. The kind of person who tends to always come up with reasons why something can't be done. We all know people like that. You come up with a brilliant thought and they'll tell you why it won't work. Well, that's Philip. So let me read this. This is why we know this. John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes, seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Now, we read here that Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. We read that he only asked Philip this question in order to test Philip. Not so that Jesus would learn the truth about Philip. He already knew the truth about Philip. But rather so that Philip would know the truth about himself. That he, and this is the truth, that he was a negative person, never thinking beyond what he could see physically, quick to explain why a plan wouldn't work. This is why I imagine here Philip took out his little Israeli calculator, punched in all the numbers, and told Jesus, can't be done. Lord, can't be done. We don't have enough money to buy bread to feed all these people. The numbers just don't work. I've tried it over and over again. They just don't work. Instead, you know what Philip should have said? He should have said something like, Lord, why do you ask me about this? 
You're the Lord. I've seen you do miracle after miracle. You can do whatever you want. You are the God of the impossible. I don't know how you'll feed all of them, but I have no doubt that you will. Lord, do whatever, whatever you see fit to feed all these people. But Philip didn't say anything like that because he was a negative, inflexible, by the numbers, weak in faith, pessimistic kind of a guy. MacArthur in his book actually calls Philip a bean counter. But like all the other apostles, Jesus transformed Philip so he did grow in his faith. The next apostle mentioned is Bartholomew, but better known to us by his other name, Nathaniel. And the glaring weakness in this man's life is that he had prejudice. He had contempt towards those who resided in the town of Nazareth because it was Nathaniel who said, when told, we have found the Messiah, he's Jesus of Nazareth. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, he said this because the people of Nazareth were mostly uneducated and unsophisticated, and Nathaniel looked down upon them with contempt. He thought he was better than them. But Jesus also said something else about Nathaniel. He said he was an Israelite in whom there's no guile, meaning he was an honest guy. He spoke his mind. He was a man of integrity. And as a result of his lack of guile, Nathaniel eventually learned to honestly face and overcome his prejudice by believing that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And he was transformed from a man of prejudice to one who saw the truth about people, even those from lowly Nazareth. Next apostle is Matthew. I don't have to say much about him. We studied about him. Matthew, Matthew's glaring weakness, he was a crook. He was a tax collector who worked for the Roman government. He robbed from his own people. But Matthew was transformed, so much so that he gave us the wonderful gospel of Matthew. Thomas is mentioned next. He's best known for his weakness, being called Doubting Thomas, because he doubted that Jesus had risen from the dead. But as I look at Thomas, I think that he wasn't so much a doubter. He was more of a pessimist, a man who tended to think of the worst things that were going to happen. He was a worst case scenario kind of a guy. And worst case scenario Thomas, who when he was told by Jesus, all of them were told by Jesus, we have to go back to the Jerusalem area to address the sickness of my friend Lazarus. It was Thomas who was sure that Jesus would die. He said, if we go back there, they'll kill you. And here's what Thomas said. Now I did have courage but once again, worst case scenario. He said, let us go also that we may die with him. But Thomas was transformed because it was Thomas who at the end of the gospel of John makes the most positive, the most positive and clearest pronouncement ever made about who Jesus is when he declares in John 20 verse 28, my Lord and my God. There's nothing pessimistic about that. Now, the next three apostles we know very little about. First, there's James, the son of Alphaeus. And the only thing for certain we know about him from the New Testament is his name. He's James and his father's name, Alphaeus. However, in Mark chapter 15, verse 40, he's also called James the Less, which could mean that he was small in stature, which would make him then little Jimmy. Or it could mean that he was young in age. Next is Simon the Zealot, whose name means that he was a member of a militant political group known as the Zealots, who were Jewish patriots trying to overthrow the Roman government. Next, there's Judas, the son of James, of which we know essentially nothing. 
Now, the final apostle is very well known. The whole messages could be given on Judas. He is the infamous Judas Iscariot, and his glaring fault, obviously, is that he was the traitor who betrayed Jesus for some money. Unlike the other apostles, Judas was never transformed because he was never converted. He was never a true believer. The New Testament telling us in Acts chapter 1 verse 25 that after his death he went to his own place, his own place meaning hell. But the tragedy of Judas, and he is the most tragic figure in all of human history, the tragedy of Judas is that though he had the opportunity to become a true believer, he wasted it. His heart was hard, and though he was so close to Jesus, hearing him teach, seeing his miracles, observing his sinless life, he continued to reject Christ, and he's now in hell, and he'll be there for all of eternity, forever. So close. Though all the other apostles offer us great encouragement because we can see how the Lord takes ordinary nobodies and transforms them and uses them for his glory, we see none of that with Judas. But what we do see with Judas Iscariot is that one can be familiar with Christ, listen closely, one can be familiar with Christ, know much about Jesus, perhaps even grow up in a Christian home, even go to a Christian school, be part of a Christian youth group and still reject Jesus Christ. And the longer this rejection goes on, the greater the heart becomes hard, cold. So if this applies to you, be very concerned. Concerned for your soul. Concerned enough to repent of your sin and come to Christ today. Don't delay. If you delay, it could be too late. And your heart will only grow colder and colder and colder. But for the rest of us, be encouraged. Because no matter what your problems might be, or your struggles, or your weaknesses, God can use you. Don't believe Satan. He's a liar. God can use you because he chooses the foolish and the weak things of this world so that he alone gets the glory. If we can be of any help to those who might want to talk about accepting Christ, I'll be up here at the front. I ask some of the elders to come up and we'll be happy to talk to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this glorious passage of Scripture. Thank you for encouraging our hearts, telling us about these men, because, Lord, we often look at our lives and we become so discouraged. But I pray that what we've heard today might encourage us, might encourage us to spend time with you, to gaze upon your beauty, to get up early in the morning and read the word and speak to you and develop a regular daily quiet time. And Lord, I pray for those who may, like Judas, be exposed to you. I pray especially for the young people of our church who hear the truth week in and week out and hear it at home and some at school and youth ministry, youth group, Sunday school classes, and yet there's nothing there. Oh, they may have made a verbal profession, but there's no reality of Christ in their lives. I pray that you'll break through and save them so that they do not end up like the tragic Judas Iscariot. Lord, do a work in their hearts as only you can. This we pray all in Jesus' name. Amen.